I've told some of you before, uh, as I was growing up, um, both my parents worked. And so in the summer times, um, my parents would send us to stay with my grandparents each summer. So as school let out, um, we would pack up the car, the big family station wagon, and we would head to Long Beach Island, New Jersey, where my grandparents had a house. And we would stay there from the time school let out until a couple days before school would start back up. And, um, and so uh, we spent probably eight hours a day on the beach and we um, would play in the sand and play in the ocean. And, and, um, and there were times that even though the water was rough, um, we just, it, we were so used to being in the ocean um, that we didn't let it stop us. And I remember there was one day I was about eight years old and the water was really rough and there was all kinds of sand in the in the waves and um it was you know one of those where you get hit by a wave and you'd feel the sand um you know in your swim trunks and and um and we just you know we were kids and we didn't let it bother us and so we were just having a good time and i remember turning to say something to a friend and then turning back to look to see is there a wave coming and i didn't realize there was a wave right up on me and this thing hit me right in the face and I was so taken back like it, it, it was so surprising and startling that I didn't even have a chance to close my eyes I got hit full in the face with a wave full of sand and so both eyes were full of sand and I went running out of the waves and and up to where uh, my grandmother was and between a bottle of water and all my tears we got most of the sand out um, but every time I blinked it would scratch and and so um, uh, ultimately my mom had to come take me and she had to uh, take me to an eye doctor and that eye doctor um, did minor surgery right there in his office and he uh, I had sand that had embedded in my pupil and it was scratching my cornea and he had to scrape the sand out. And, and, um, and then when he was done, he said, Hey, it's really important that your eyes don't move because you're going to continue to scratch. Um, and so I'm going to patch your eyes. And so, um, he actually patched both eyes for the first 24 hours. And then after that, I just had to keep the one patched. Um, and I wasn't allowed in the water for four to six weeks. It, it, as I look back, it it was really only a few hours, you know, because between sleep and all that kind of thing, there was only a few hours where I didn't have use of both of my eyes. And and yet it left an indelible mark on, on my memory. 40 years later, I, I still remember uh, all the feelings of angst and um, and just like how hard it was to get around and and having to be led around and not wanting to really get up and do anything because I had fear I was going to bump into everything and and I, I remember then years later um, being in my high school years and college years and watching my grandfather slowly lose his sight he had macular degeneration and he had detached retinas and and he was a guy who read all the time he had had polio as a child so he was confined to a chair most of the time and and um and so he read and read and read and he would have to buy new bibles because he would wear them out and and if you were to open up any of his bibles you would see check marks 
next to the books of the Bible in the index where he had read and read and read and read and read. Every time he read through a book of the Bible, he would check it off. And so he went from having a normal print Bible to the, the large font, to the super large, to the extra giant. And then eventually, as he got into his 90s, he just had to switch to the Bible on cassette tape. And I remember um, watching him and seeing how um, despondent he was, that he had lost the ability to read and the idiot he was losing his eyesight and, and really couldn't tell we would walk in and he would by the sound of our voice he would say hey is that tim or hey is that ken but but he couldn't see us and we would be just a few feet away and and i think um most of us take our vision for granted right it's not something that we think about because it's just something we're so accustomed to it's like breathing we we think about um our eyesight only really when when something goes wrong even those of us who have contacts or glasses um we we don't tend to think about our eyesight a whole lot. But I think probably um, uh, as we think about eyesight, there's nobody that would ever wish blindness on someone, right? You would never say, man, I hope that guy goes blind. You wouldn't. And intrinsically, we have a fear of blindness. We, we, at some level, we hope that we never have to live with that hardship. So it's hard for us to comprehend when someone, when, when the Bible talks about a guy being born blind, we have a hard time imagining what that's like. Now, so here's, here's what I want you to do. Um, everybody except for Kirby, because he's driving. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Uh, some of you are like, I'm way ahead of you. As soon as you start talking, I close my eyes. Um, but, but seriously, don't, don't go to sleep. And Kirby, please keep your eyes open. But everybody else, close your eyes for just a moment. Um, and, and we are going to be discussing a story about a guy who was born blind, which means that what you see right now with your eyes closed is more than what he ever saw. He never saw any light. Um, uh, when when he was was born and growing up, he never saw his mother's face. When he was old enough, he was put onto the street to beg. And, and though he lived in a city and he heard the sounds of the urban setting and he smelled the dust in the air and, and the sense of the marketplace, he had never seen anything. Now really squeeze your eyes closed, okay? Have your eyes completely shut. And in that darkness, um, put yourself in his skin for a minute. You're sitting near the temple where the crowds are most disposed to throw you a small coin. And even without sight, you can feel when somebody's staring at you. And sure enough, the eyes are on you and you hear these words, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now you've heard this question hundreds, maybe thousands of times, because you hang out by the temple and you are used to being a theological object lesson for uh, the rabbis and their disciples. And in that instant, uh, your mind recaps all the different arguments that you've heard. And you think, man, I've heard rabbis explain that 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 even in the womb, babies are capable of sin. And, and the psalmist said in Psalms 51, surely I was sinful at birth. And from the time that my mother conceived me, I was in sin. And and I've I've heard that God will punish sin with sickness and, and with handicaps. And so I wonder if it's something that I did. Well, I wonder if it's something that my parents did. Some of the rabbis talk about Moses who wrote in Exodus um, 34, uh, that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children until the third and the fourth generation. Maybe I'm getting punished for something my parents did or maybe something their parents did. And, and your thoughts are interrupted by these words. 
Neither has this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. And you think, holy cow, I've heard a lot of things, but I've never heard this one before, right? And 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 just as, as you're thinking through these words that he just said, which are completely different than anything anybody else has ever said, you hear, and, and you think, he's spitting on me. And and you cover your face and you try to back away because you didn't spit on before. And you didn't even try to like taunt this guy. You didn't ask for any money. You you were just minding your own business. And so you wonder why in the world is he doing this? And you feel pressure on the back of your head. And, and you know that there is a hand there on you and you feel the pressure on your eyes and you try to pull away, but the hands hold you firm and you feel mud being put into your eyes and you panic a little because even though you're blind, you can still feel the dust and the debris in your eyes and you're about to call out and ask for help, but he suddenly stops and says, go wash in the pool called scent. <laughs> At first you wonder like, is this some kind of sick joke? And, and the, is this rabbi a nut? And yet he's given you a way out. And so you jump up and you head towards the water and, and you can hear the water lapping. And as you get close, you, you kind of feel your way and grope your way to the water and, and you're replaying the circumstances in your mind again. And no matter how you examine what's happened to you, you can't make any sense of it. And so you get to the water and you begin to cup the water in your hands and you begin to splash it on your eyes. And as the mud comes off of your face, you have a painful experience. You are sensing something you have never sensed before. Your eyes see something, but you don't even know what it is. You, you, there's bright and white, but you don't know what bright and white is because you've never experienced it before. Your, your eyes are pierced with the brightness of the sun. And suddenly you realize that all the things that you hear and all the things that you smell, now you can match up and you can see and they come into focus. And for the first time, you understand that you see. And for the first time, you look into the water and you see your own reflection and you think, is that what I really look like? Now, now open your eyes. We, we, we can scarcely begin to imagine what it was that this man felt. Like as, as darkness gave way to light, this guy must have had an enormous number of emotions that all went around at the same time. But here's the amazing thing. The, the excitement that he had at the pool called scent is going to pale in comparison to what happens to him at the end of our story. If you, if you turn with me to John chapter 9, John chapter 9, we are going to be talking about the blind man that Jesus healed. Now remember, in, in as we've been going through the, the gospel of John, um, we have talked about the fact that, that, that John has written that we might believe, right? And there's nine signs that he does, and he, as he does these signs, um, each one of them meets a, a felt need or a physical need, and each one is an act of compassion. And, and Jesus does something that is absolutely impossible, and then he kind of takes it to the next level. He, he doesn't just turn water into wine. He turns water into the best wine, better than anything that they had served before. He doesn't just heal a boy, but he heals a boy from a distance. He doesn't just heal a man who was lame, but a man who was lame for 38 years. He doesn't just feed 5,000 people, but there's 12 baskets left over out of a little tiny lunch that didn't even fill up a basket to start with. And so last week, we looked at him walking on water, and he didn't just walk on the water. He walked three or four miles out to where his disciples were in the middle of a storm. In each instance, he does something that's absolutely unbelievable. And, and he 
takes it to the next level because he wants us to see these signs and he wants us to believe. John chapter 20 says, Jesus did many miraculous signs, but these were written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and by believing have life through his name. So when we come to John chapter 9, John chapter 9 is not just the story of God healing a blind man. This is the story of 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 Jesus not just giving sight to one man, but Jesus trying to get everyone to see as God sees. Jesus wants us to see what see things as God sees them. And, and what we're going to find out is to, to see as God sees, that we must believe and trust what God says. John chapter 9, um, verse 1, if I can get it to, there we go. As he passed by, it says, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And so as as we begin this passage, we see a blind man who sees physically, right? And as Jesus um, is asked this question of the disciples. They, they ask a question that's on their mind, but it is not the purpose that's on Jesus's heart. As Jesus is responding to the question that they give, he, he says, look, it, this has nothing to do with him or his parents. This has something to do with what God is doing. And when, when he says the next phrase, it's really interesting. He says, not I must work the works of him who sent me, but we must work the works of him who sent me. He's, the disciples are asking about responsibility and they're saying, whose sin is it? And he says, no, the question about responsibility is, are you going to participate with me in the works that God wants to do? And so he's, he uses the word we, he invites them into that service. And he says, we must, it's, it's necessity. He's, he's saying um, service like for God and to do the works that God is asking us to do, this is not an optional thing. And he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And, and he is talking about his priority and, and his priority is, is not, hey, you need to learn, but you need to do. And so all of Christianity, we, like when, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and when he talks about teaching, it's not teaching that they may learn, it's teaching that they may observe all that I've commanded. And so he is, his priority is for us to do the works of him who sent while it is a day, he's, there's an urgency, like there's a limited time, time is short. And so he says, there's a time coming, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so we see Jesus and he is going to um, heal a blind man. And this blind man is going to see physically. And he said, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he went and he washed and he came back. The, the ESV says back. Uh, the NIV says he went home seeing. Um, probably the best word we could stick in there is, and he, he went away seeing. And 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 it, it doesn't seem like he goes back to Jesus. It says that he went away seeing, and, and they're going to ask in a few minutes, like, where is this Jesus? And I don't know. I've never seen him is really what he's he's basically going to say. So it's not that he goes back to Jesus. He just comes away from the water and he can see. And it says the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, 
it's he. And others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, no, 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 I am that man. And, and they said, well, then how were your eyes opened? And, and he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And when I went and washed, I received my sight. And they said, where is he? And he said, I don't know, right? So, so you, you go from a man who is blind physically, seen physically, and then you see a man who was blind and is blind, and he is starting to see intellectually. He is starting to see, hey, Jesus did something that's, that's pretty important. And the thing that he sees is different than the way the Pharisees see it. In verse 13, it says, they brought the Pharisees um, to the man who had formerly been blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again said, asked him, how did he receive his sight? He said, he put mud on my eyes and he, he washed and I, I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who, who is a sinner, that is somebody who, who God doesn't listen to, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, um, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he, I don't know, he's a prophet. And so the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. This is amazing. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. So the, the Pharisees' rationale is this. Um, uh, this man doesn't keep the Sabbath. Therefore, he's a sinner. That means a sinner is someone that God does not listen to. Therefore, there must not have been any healing, and you must never have been blind. That's their rationale. And this blind man's rationale is, is completely different. His rationale is, look, you're supposed to know everything. But, but you don't know Jesus. And, and God doesn't listen to sinners, but he listened to Jesus. So no one's ever heard in the history of the world of somebody who was blind since birth being given his sight, and yet Jesus did it. Therefore, Jesus must be from God. And that, that's exactly the argument he's about to give to the, to the uh, Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees turn to his parents. They say, uh, is this the one who received his sight? Is this your son who was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents said, well, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. They are afraid of the Pharisees. They know that the Pharisees have the ability to cast them out of the synagogue. If they're cast out of the synagogue, they can't do business. They can't worship. They can't go to God to have their, their sins forgiven. They, they are basically outside of the, the covenant community. And so this is not something that they want. And so it says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And the Jews had already agreed if anyone should confess Jesus to be Messiah, to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so the second time they called the man who had been born blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This man is someone God doesn't listen to. And he said, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. The only thing I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And, and this is a, a, an amazing statement. And I think so many times we um, overcomplicate our sharing of Christ and our sharing of our testimony and the way that God has changed our lives. And we overcomplicate. I mean, this is a guy who said, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. When, when, when we think about sharing our testimony, we think I have to impress people with my knowledge. And, and 
the, the thing about trying to impress people with our knowledge is that really the only thing that will actually influence people is what it is that we've experienced. Um, there's a British evangelist named Leonard Ravenhill who said, a man with experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Your, your testimony or your experience could be something so simple. You know, I was seeking meaning in success or in substances or in relationships, and it eluded me, but Jesus offered me meaning, and he offered me hope, and he offered me joy, and he offered me reconciliation to God, and I've received it, and my life has changed. That that took less than a minute to say, and, and it is just the simplicity of our experience that, that has the ability to capture people's attention. And he says, one thing I knew, know, I was blind, but now I see. And they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, look, I told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And he begins to taunt them. Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. They, they yelled at him. They screamed at him. You're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We didn't know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man said, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he has opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man been born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out of the synagogue right? And so his rationale, you're supposed to know everything, but you don't know Jesus. And, and God doesn't listen to sinners, but he listened to Jesus. And since the foundation of the world, nobody's ever known of somebody being born blind, having their eyes open. And Jesus must be God, and you don't know him. Therefore, you don't know God, and you don't really know anything. No wonder they cast him out, right? They cast him out of the synagogue, and, and he is now in a worse position than he was when he was blind. Because now he's not just an outcast who can sit outside the synagogue. They've cast him out. They don't want him anywhere near there. He's, he's banned from the premises. And so it says that Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And this is where you see things change because this guy was blind and he was healed and seized physically. And then he was blind but he sees intellectually that, that this doesn't make sense, that the Pharisees' teaching doesn't make sense. But this is the, the place where you finally see that this man is going to see spiritually. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. I, I, I want to believe. I, tell me who he is. And Jesus said, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And his words were... Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And, and in this, he says, um, oops, I'm, I'm back on an old slide. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into the world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you are blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. You, you know, as, as we see this man become who was blind, we see his eyes opened 
physically, and then we see his eyes open spiritually, and he falls down and he worships, um, and, and without any fear, because at this point, he's already been cast out of the synagogue. What can they possibly do to him, right? And, and Jesus makes this statement, for judgment I came into the world. Now, please don't read the word judgment as um, condemnation, he doesn't say for condemnation I came into the world. In fact, in John, in th- John chapter three, when he's talking to um, uh, uh, Nicodemus, he says, um, uh, I, the, "The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved." When he says for judgment, it's it's so that you can see the difference between two things. For clarity, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who may uh, who see may become blind. This is um, uh, a hard passage. This is this is a, a a verse that you read and you go, man, that's that's a difficult thing. Jesus says, "I've come to open up the eyes of the blind, and I have come to shut the eyes of those who think they see." It is very similar to Second Corinthians chapter two. Second Corinthians chapter two says that we are the aroma. The the King James says we are the sweet savor of Christ. That is that we are all a sacrifice and this sweet aroma is going um, to God and and we are the aroma of Christ. We are the, we are the scent of his sacrifice and the scent of his sacrifice is going up to God and that we are part of that. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, there's a fragrance from death to death. To one, there's a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When when Jesus says, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind, he, he is describing two effects of the gospel. The gospel has two effects. It blinds those who think that they see. It is the sweet aroma of death to death for them. And and many are hardened by the words of the gospel. When they hear the gospel, their hearts turn away from it. I remember um, I was just a teenager. I was I was working for Word of Life International, which is a Christian camping and Bible Institute organization that's in 35 countries. And I was in upstate New York, and Jack Wurtzen was the founder of, of Word of Life, and he had been uh, part of Youth for Christ. So when, when Youth for Christ began, it was Word of Life, Youth for Christ. And then um, Youth for Christ decided they were going to focus on rallies. Jack Wurtzen decided he wanted to focus on camps and clubs and Bible Institutes. And so they split the organization. And and Word of Life began, and it, it kind of went forward. And I was working at, at a Word of Life conference center, and and I remember, you know, every Saturday morning, um, people would come and they would check in, and and every now and then, I mean, the founder of this global organization would just show up as people were registering because he wanted to greet people and he wanted to to meet them and get to know them because he was going to be preaching to them later on that night. And there was a lady who came in and 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 she was in a, a convertible and her hair was all frazzled from the wind and she had just dropped her kids off at the different camps. And, and he, he says, hey, is this your first time at the Word of Life Inn? And she says, yes, it is. And, and they begin to talk and he says, what is it you hope to get out of this week? And she goes, I just need a vacation. I'm so glad I could just drop the kids off. And and he began to kind of probe on spiritual things. And it came to light very quickly that she had no interest whatsoever in spiritual things. And and Jack Wartson said to this woman, 
so, something that took me by like absolute surprise. He said, look, it's, it's Saturday and we're going to have a couple messages this afternoon and tonight. And then there's going to be a message tomorrow morning. And then again, tomorrow night. Um, and, and the gospel is going to be presented very clearly. And here's what I want to uh, offer you. If in these first few messages, you hear the gospel and you, your heart is not stirred and your, your mind is not changed and God does not open up the eyes of your heart to see, then I'm going to ask if you will take two times what you paid to be here this week as a refund and go home so that you don't hear the gospel throughout the whole week and your heart become hardened. I don't want you to be like Pharaoh who heard the word of the Lord and it hardened his heart until it destroyed him. And so he, he offered her two times her what she had paid if, if she didn't come to faith and she'd go home so that she could enjoy her vacation somewhere else. And it stuck with me. I just thought, what, what a strange thing. I would have thought you want her there the whole week to hear the gospel over and over. And the gospel has two effects. And one effect is it, it will blind the eyes of those who think that they see. It will harden the heart of people who they reject it. Um, it will increase our guilt and responsibility. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, our guilt remains, and, and your guilt remains. And, and I think in, in not just adding to our guilt, um, it adds to our dissatisfaction. When, when we think that we have seen, when we've gotten a glimpse, when our eyes have, have briefly been opened, and then we embrace the darkness, how in the world can we ever be satisfied again with the darkness? This week um, was was kind of a, a, a heavy week for me, um, and, and probably none of you have seen the articles because um, uh, the the editor of CCM uh, magazine, um, author a Christian author of sixteen books, including many children's Christian books like God Made Me and and others, uh, Matthew Turner. Um, uh, Posted on social media this week, and there were articles about him doing it. Um, that that he was leaving his wife of seventeen years and his three children, and he was um, uh, going to pursue uh, relationships with other men. And so he was leaving um, kind of all the things that he had done: uh, Christian authorship, uh, ed- editing for Christian magazines, writing articles for Relevant magazine, and others. Um, and he he was basically uh, leaving that to pursue um, uh, a life that is marked by sin and selfishness. Um, and, and for most of you, you, you go, CCM Magazine, haven't heard of that in 10 years, or, or you know, I've maybe never heard of, of Matthew's name. Um, but for me, I've known Matthew since he was 10 or 11 years old. Uh, we went to school together. Um, his parents, uh, his mom, sang in the choir at our church. His dad was my Sunday school teacher. Um, his dad's an elder at a church where uh, it's a church plant like this one. Um, and uh, my friend Kurt is the, is the lead pastor there. And so it was, it was a heavy thing to think about Matthew leaving Jessica and his, and the, their three kids and, and, and choosing this lifestyle. And, um, and so uh I, I was 
swapping some notes back and forth with Kurt and just saying, hey, you know, how's, how are Virgil and Carol holding up under this? I mean, here's, here's people who um, they, they have devoted their life to seeing their kids come to faith. They put them in Christian school. They were in church every time the doors were open. He's an elder of a, of a church now. Um, now their, their son is walking away from, from the faith and, and walking away from what's true. And, and, and we were just processing it together. And we felt the heaviness and the weight of it. Um, and, and, and what I began as I, as I was thinking about this passage is, is it's, it's not just that his guilt has remains and that his his guilt and responsibility increases because he's chosen the dark but man his dissatisfaction will increase because he has seen the light and he has chosen the darkness and honestly i'm in some ways i'm excited for matthew because I think for the first time, he's actually closer to redemption than he's ever been. Because up till now, he has put on the, the pretense of, I am in the light. And now he is finally saying, I'm choosing the dark. And it's not until you understand that you are blind that you know to ask for God to make your eyes open. And I think if I were to offer Matthew three things. I, I would say, Matthew, I want to give you three things. First, I want to give you an apology because I was one of those kids who reinforced the lie as we were growing up that, that when you would act effeminate, I would, I would be the one name calling. I'd be the one saying like, and I'd be reinforcing the lie that, that, that you can't choose the, that this is who you are. But I would also give you advice. And my advice is this, do not dip your toe. <laughs> um, a couple years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the Killers wrote a song uh, where they said, the devil's water, it ain't so sweet. You don't have to drink it right now, but you can dip your toe every once in a little while. And, and I would say, don't dip your toe. I would say, do like the, the prodigal son and run headlong into it. Because when you run headlong into it, eventually you'll get to the end of yourself. And when you get to the end of yourself and you have been pursuing happiness and pursuing joy and you get to the end and there's nothing there and you see that it's all bankrupt, you're going to realize like, the, like that prodigal son did, what am I doing? joy is found in my father's household. And, and you, you will say, like he said, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father and I'm going to go home. And so I would give you an apology and I'd give you advice and I would give you an invitation. And the invitation is come home. When you hit the end of yourself and you have realized that, that you have been walking in darkness, choose the light. Don't, don't choose to embrace the darkness and stay with it. And so the, the two effects of the gospel are it blinds those who think that they see and it gives sight to those who are blind. Romans 5 says that sin entered the world and, and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. And Romans 5, 6 says that while we were incapable, Christ died for us, that God showed his love towards us, that while we were still his enemies, he sent his son to die in our place to reconcile us to God. And so Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, we have 
been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we've obtained access into this grace by which we stand, and now we rejoice in the glory of God. We, we understand that we were blind. We sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We understand that spiritually we were blind and we were incapable. And I, I heard one pastor uh, this week talk about um, two men in, in England who one was very wealthy and, and the other one uh, was very poor. And the poor man had at one time worked for the very rich man and that they saw each other in in a uh, evangelistic campaign tent and and they saw the conviction on each other's faces as the, the the preacher was preaching and that they continued to come back night after night but one night the very rich man saw the poor man and saw the light of Christ in his face and said I don't see the conviction anymore I see that you have embraced it how is it that you have embraced it and I have not and the poor man said it's easy it's because I stood before the king of kings and he offered me a robe of righteousness and I knew I was already naked and without any clothing and I knew that I was desperate and in need and you somehow think that this clothing that you have made with your prestige and with your wealth is still worth hanging on to and you have not been willing to exchange it for the robe of righteousness that the king of kings offers you. That's the difference between us. I think when we think about the darkness and the light, we have to see that God through Jesus Excuse me. God through Christ has given us light and he has given us the ability and he has, he has called us to himself. And when we believe that our righteousness is good enough, then we hold on to it. And it's not until we see the true darkness of our souls. It's not until we see the desperation that we're in. It's not until we truly understand that we're blind, that he will open up our eyes. And when we, he does open up our eyes, it's, it's, we, um, we see spiritually and then we worship fearlessly. This man, it says, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. And when we worship fearlessly, God, um, uh, he has allowed us to see because we have seen and we have trusted. And in worshiping, we see him completely. We see him as 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 we finally should, and we see through his eyes. We see as he sees. To, to see as God sees, we must believe and we must trust what God says. I, I want you to do this. I want you to close your eyes one more time. And as you close your eyes in the darkness, I want you to listen to the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ. It is our bigness. It is not our weakness it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds him back. God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks for your weakness, and he has none of that himself. He is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as an instrument of his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? And I would ask, will you not yield your darkness to him and receive his light? To see as God sees, we must believe and trust what God says. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is a 
lamp unto our feet, that it is a light unto our path. We thank you that the light has shined into the darkness. We thank you that Jesus has come and he has said, I am the light of the world. Lord, we thank you that you have opened up our eyes, that you have said that you illuminate our eyes. And when we read your scriptures, you open up our eyes and open up our hearts so that we can believe and so that we can understand. Lord, we thank you that you have given these signs that we might believe in the name of the Son of God. And by believing, we might have life. Lord, I pray that in all the areas where we are holding on to darkness, that your light will shine in. Lord, all the things that we are hiding, we ask that you will allow us to put them in the light to find forgiveness and freedom. Lord, I pray that in every way that we think that we are robed in righteousness and of our own self-righteousness, that we will see that the shoddy clothes that we're wearing are, are not worth keeping and that we will cast them off and we will embrace the robe of your righteousness. Father, we are a people who believe. And we say like this man, Lord, I believe and we worship you because we believe that you are worth worshiping. We believe that you are the son of God, that you have died in our place, that you have reconciled us to God, that you have offered us life and that you are giving us the light that we need in this life and, and, the, and you have called us to be a light on a hill, the one that, that can be seen for miles around. Lord, we pray that we will be light and life, that we will take your gospel into all the world. Jesus, I ask that you will make Mercy Chapel a light in Westlake and in Newberry Park and in Thousand Oaks, that we will be a light to the nations, that we will offer your hope and your grace. Lord, we ask this thing, these things because we do believe they're according to your will. So we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.